Hey everyone, welcome back to the Potter's House, the podcast where we discuss how biblical topics, church life, and current events impact our everyday lives. My name is Marcus Ionescu, and I am your host, and today we're joined by a very special guest, Miss, yes, you heard that correctly, Miss Rafaela Heinbuckner. Rafi, how's it going tonight? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm excited. And uh, like I said when I introduced you, you are the first featured female on this podcast. How does that, how does that make you feel? Wow, I am uh, so honored, you know, on behalf of 50% of the world's population. It's just, uh, it's great, man. <laughs> I think it's 51%, but, but, oh, yeah, uh, right. but the reason why this is funny and how it kind of comes full circle is that I think you were the very first person who asked me when I want to have a woman on the podcast. And I think this was like six, seven months ago. And I was like, I didn't know how to answer that question. Like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I never really thought of it until now. And then nine or 10 other of like nine or 10 of your friends just continued to ask me over the months. And I'm like, okay, we got to do this because (laughs) it's due time. We're on episode 29, I think. And uh, it's time for that. But uh, thank you so much for agreeing to be here. Uh, Yeah. You know, when I was was roasting you, I was not expecting (laughs) an interview though so i wasn't fishing for anything but i appreciate you having me on it's been it's an honor absolutely and i could definitely tell from your reaction when i first asked you you were like somewhat reluctant so i was like oh man was did i read this wrong but uh, i'm glad that you reached out i'm glad that we can talk about this and I am excited about this episode, but before we get into that, uh, just a couple of quick announcements for the podcast. Um, You guys can follow us for any and all updates on our Instagram account, at The Potter's House. Uh, You can listen to us, Spotify, uh, iTunes, slash Apple Podcasts, other podcast platforms, but if you do have an iPhone, please go to that purple podcast app. Scroll down, subscribe. Well, first subscribe, then scroll down, and then tap the stars. It really helps with the exposure of the show. And if you want to leave a written review, please, you can do so. I'll read them, and I'll even read them out loud here on the podcast. So, for those of you who have already done it, thank you so much. For those of you, who, for those of you who have yet to do it, uh, please do. I would really appreciate it, and uh, that'd be great. So, thank you guys for all the support that you've given thus far. Uh, but as we're returning to this episode. Um, Rafi, before we get started, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the to the listeners out there uh, if they don't already know you? Yeah, all right. So uh, my name is Rafaela Heinbuchner. I am currently living in Michigan. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree in political science, German, minor in entrepreneurship from the University of Michigan. Um, I recently graduated with a master's degree in biblical studies from Moody Theological Seminary. Um, I run a property management company and I currently serve as a worship leader at my church, which is Bethesda Romania Pentecostal, um, out in Troy, Michigan. And I'm also involved in women's discipleship. Awesome. And uh, did you, so Moody Institute is in Chicago, right? Uh, did you yes. relocate for, for the time being? No, Moody has this really awesome master's program where you could do a hybrid. So I had some classes in Chicago. I had some classes online. I actually, they have a uh a place town here in Plymouth, in Michigan. So I was able to have some in-class classes, in-person classes. I mean, those were great. Honestly, if anyone's interested in getting a master's there, I'd highly recommend it. And the only reason I ask is because I actually considered it a few years back before I kind of went uh, like full throttle with engineering. Uh, my uncle, who's a pastor in Chicago, invited me to come and attend the school. And then I could, he would like kind of disciple me and grow me. But uh, when I put it before the Lord, God, you know, God, God, revealed to me to stay here, finish my thing. And, uh, 
um, no, it was definitely at the back of my mind and maybe something I pursue mm-hmm. in the future. But I'm, but I'm super glad that, uh, you know, you have that background. And uh, it's really important to the episode that we're going to tackle today because we're going to tackle the book of Revelation. And uh, ideally enough, that is uh, what you seem to have finished with at your studies at Moody, right? It was that, that last class, that last final paper that you uh, submitted. Yeah, it was kind of like a capstone. Um, ended up spending a lot of time in the book of Revelation. And um, it's been really fascinating because before this, I didn't really spend too much time in the book. I kind of took, um, I kind of avoided it, to be honest. But um, once I learned more about it, I learned how rich and amazing and in-depth it is. And I just want to share that with other people, you know, because I think a lot of people are kind of scared of even touching Revelation. And there's a couple pitfalls they can fall into. And um, I just wanted to share that with that with people who might be interested in learning more, you know, kind of like a Revelation 101 class. Yeah, and uh, for all of us out there who have ever attempted to read Revelation, we know that at the beginning it's, it's sort of okay, it's manageable, the first two, three chapters. Uh, but then one, once it gets really deep in the, in the symbolism and then there's timeline stuff, uh, when, I, when I'm reading it, uh, like I just said, the two most difficult things for me to understand is all of the symbols, what they mean, and then what happens and in what order, because it it, it all kind of happens and you think you're somewhere and then you're, you're somewhere else. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that we can do this episode. Uh, it's going to be like, like you said, uh, for your listeners out there, it's going to be more of like a revelation one-on-one, uh, what it's about, how to understand it. And then uh, towards the end of the episode, we're going to tackle two of the different symbols presented in Revelation 11 and 12. Uh, just to add some clarity to that. So, uh, Rafi, I'm just going to give you the the reins. We're going to get started. I'll interject as I can. I will have plenty of questions, but I promise I will only ask a couple uh, for, just for the, for the sake of the episode. But uh, go right on ahead, and uh, we'll go from there. All right. Sounds good. Uh, well, the first thing that I want to say is congratulations on not saying the book of Revelations. Uh, a lot of people add an S over there at the end. And uh, no, it's just one revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that's given to John. So that's great. Good job. Thank you. Um, I would say other than that, there's a couple of pitfalls people fall into when um, they like look at the book. The first is um, they kind of read through Revelation and they just get confused and they get overwhelmed and they don't really know what to do about it. Um, the second is they avoid the book entirely or they'll just read like the first three, four chapters, which personally I would kind of do. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but there's actually when churches uh, preach on Revelation, they'll usually p- preach out of the first three chapters, you know, because those kind of make sense. They're all about repentance. They're all about um, these seven churches in Asia, um, but they don't really touch anything after like chapter five, essentially. Mm-hmm. And um I think that's a shame because that's like the bulk of the book and that's where some real awesome things are. And um, that's what I wanted have to have people who are going to like read the book just feel equipped to know, you know. Um, so we're going to touch on a couple of things um, as we go through here. But kind of the last pitfall that people fall into is they'll try to read the text and then they'll try to find like real world fulfillments. Still, they'll read and they'll be like, oh my gosh, uh, you know, I think the locusts in chapter nine are actually like helicopter army choppers. You know, it looks like that. <laughs> or um, when barcodes were first introduced in the 70s, people thought that was the mark of the beast. They're like certain about it. Um, I remember like Y2K, 
I mean, we might be a little on the younger side, but Y2K was a thing where people were like, oh my gosh, Christ is coming back for sure. And then he did it. It's 2021. It's 21 years later. Um, I've also heard people like speculate that like the false prophet in chapter 13 is AI technology. Honestly, it's all interesting stuff. Um, and speculation is not wrong. But Revelation is such an amazing book that when you just look for that, you kind of miss the things that Jesus Christ wants to show you and wants um, to reveal to you. So um, what I would say is Revelation is significant because it, because it comes at the end of the Bible, right? It's like the capstone of the Bible. It's, it's the concluding paragraph. And um, it kind of ends God's like big overarching story of all creation. Um, this is what I would call like the meta narrative. So the meta narrative is creation, the fall, salvation, and victory. And, and we see all of that come together um, in Revelation. And when we're fall and when we ignore all this, all of this, we miss something that's really, really beautiful and important. So that's what I would tell people, you know what, how about we put those things aside sometimes when we read Revelation, you know what, and just focus on what the message that Jesus Christ is trying to get to us is. Yeah, so, um, go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, about regarding the first three chapters, uh, when I was reading it, um, I got to, obviously, the part where the letters to the different churches, and what, what got me thinking was that there, there are a few moments, a few times, instances in the history of existence and the history of mankind where it's just so profound, it's almost unfathomable. And and I think uh, if looking back, we have God breathing everything into existence. There's uh, the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's fire falling down from the heavens on multiple occasions. There's mm-hmm. just so many different things. And I think when I got to the point where um, in Revelation uh, chapter 1 and 2 where, where John is just presented with with that vision and then he, he sees uh all these different symbols it's like wow this is amazing this is this is glorious this is how great is our god that he's that he's that he's doing this and i i, I just i had to pause for a second before i continued and and those letters uh even because they're a little more doctrinal that we spend a little more time on them but they're so powerful they are so powerful and it really uh hits the heart but uh i i think it's just a wonderful way to open up the book uh, the way that the way that John does uh, through the vision, but um, but yeah, I think like and I I agree with you one hundred percent that it's uh, there, there are a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of speculation, and uh, I think a, people use the last eighteen chapters of Revelation purely for speculation, which is kind of fun. Um, I do have my personal beliefs on AI technology. I do. <laughs> if I had to guess, if I had to guess, I think it'll be have have something to do with the mark of the beast. I don't know. That's that's my thing. And um, obviously, you yeah, have barcodes, but now even people are considering the the COVID vaccine the mark of the beast. There's there's always talks about this and that, but uh, a lot of it's speculation, and it could be a little fun, but we can't get carried away. But uh, yeah, that's just kind of like my take on the book as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you said, like it, it's fun to imagine, but when that's all we do, we miss the whole point that Jesus Christ is trying to bring to us. You know, um, one of the things is. Um, Let's look at just the way that this book is titled. So this book is called uh, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. So if we look at the Greek word that's used, that's the word apocalypsis. 
And it basically basically means an uncovering or unveiling. So it's an unveiling of something that was once hidden. So this is information that um, in Old Testament times, before Jesus Christ uh, came down on earth, was hidden. People didn't know. But now Jesus Christ revealed it to John, who is bringing it to us. So um, I thought that's really important when we think about it. This is information that... um, God has like given us the privilege to look into to see what's going to happen in the future. Um, in terms of like who wrote the book, uh, the book was probably written by the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John. Um, some people actually speculate that they um, that revelation happened before he wrote the Gospel, so that John actually had this revelation. And then with this in the back of his head, he kind of wrote the Gospel of John. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's kind of interesting to think of. And maybe if you were to go back and read the gospel, you'd maybe see some influence there. Um, In terms of when it was written, some people think it was written between AD 68 or 69. So that would be during the reign of Nero Caesar. And that would have been before the fall of the Temple of Jerusalem. So the fall of the temple, that's like a really big event in Christian history and in Jewish history. That was in AD 70. And um, some evidence for this, like, dating um, comes in the number 666, actually. So um, the number 666, if you were to trans, uh, translate it, translate the name Nero Caesar into Hebrew and assign numbers to the letters, the letters 666 are equivalent to Nero Caesar. So that's kind of interesting. Um, so people think that's, like, evidence for that, the fact that it was written during Nero's time. The other part is that the chapter 17, which is the prostitute Babylon, it seems to be pretty clearly about the Roman Empire during this time. So um, that's why they think that that's when it was written. The other part is, is um, a, the fall of the temple was such a big, massive, like nightmare of an event that people are surprised that John wouldn't talk about it in Revelation if it had already occurred. So they believe that he wrote it before the fall of the temple And this prophecy is a prophecy about the fall of the temple. Um, Other people think that it was written like AD 95 through 96, which is when Emperor Domitian was in charge. Emperor Domitian is the one who forced all of Rome to worship um, the emperor as a god. So, I mean, uh, that's interesting. There's church fathers like Iranius and Eusebius. So these are people who uh, were big names back in the day. They thought that was a probable date. But at any rate, whenever it was written, what we know is that the book of Revelation was written to a church in crisis. It was written to the seven churches in Asia. And at this point in time, the church was being persecuted on a massive scale. The church was, um, the people who proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ were being burned at the stake. They were being thrown into jail. They were being scapegoated for all of Rome's problems. So um, the first like, couple decades of Christianity were fine. Rome kind of ignored Christianity. But once it grew and once it became something super big, Rome attacked Christianity. And this is kind of the the church that John is addressing here. Um, So I just want us to remember this is that the audience is to the first century church, but it's written for us. So it's to the church for the church of all of history. So to the first century church for the church of all history to read and to take information out of and to benefit from. Does that make sense? Yeah. And uh, 
And we see that a lot, especially, I would say, especially with the Old Testament, where mm -hmm. the things that happen, the lessons that they learn in the physical apply to us in the spiritual. And that's how yeah. I kind of see these letters to these churches. Um, what they're struggling with is what we struggle with today. And what's interesting is that you have seven different churches and each each thing that is addressed in each church is, is slightly different from the other. Uh, you have churches struggling with the spirit of Jezebel. You have immorality, mm -hmm. this and that, and uh, and it's interesting how the letter starts. Like this is this is what's how they're doing well, but this is what they need to correct. And then whoever has ears, let them hear. And then it, it's basically giving you that solution, and in uh, and that hope at the end. But it, it definitely, I mean. When I read it, like I said, one of those profound mo moments when I was reading it, I was like, wow, this is like, well, first of all, I thought I'm like, man, be, this would be a great like sermon series just to tackle <laughs> each of the yeah. different oh, yeah. uh, churches uh, and talk about that because that's something we all deal with. But um, no, I, I mean, I, I so see it as doctrinal. I, I so see it applying it to our lives and to our church today, especially uh, now rather than like 50 or 100 years ago or maybe between the last 2,000 years and now I think is this passage in, in Revelation is the most applicable to our church today as opposed to times before. Yeah, um, I will say when you're reading through Revelation, um, one thing that we have to know is that it's steeped in Old Testament. Like um, some people say that there are more Old Testament references in the book of Revelation than there are in any other New Testament epistle or, or letter or gospel. Um, and one of the things I would say is if you really want to understand Revelation, you got to understand the Old Testament. And especially books like Daniel and Isaiah, Ezekiel and Zechariah, those ones, man, they pop up everywhere over here. So mm -hmm. um, it's important for you to be aware of what happens in the Old Testament just as much as in the New Testament, because it's it, it just comes back again and again and again. Um, you mentioned earlier in the episode that, you know, you had questions about like, how all these events happen and what order one of the things that some people have suggested is that revelation isn't written in like a linear style it's not like okay first a happens then b then c then d um some people have suggested that there's like it's like a cyclical style like john will write about one one thing and then he'll go back to something else and then he'll go back to that same thing but repeat it in a, but say in a different way so like some people think like the seven trumpets and the seven bowls john's just saying the same thing, but in a different way again. Um, I don't know uh, if that's true or not, to be honest. I'm still kind of forming my opinion on that. But if there's some listeners who are reading through that and they feel like they see these patterns, I would say, you know, see if you can find some more of that because it's entirely possible that that's how John um, wrote out these visions. Um, but yeah, like the pitfalls we mentioned earlier, I would say... We can have a habit of kind of missing the forest for the trees, you know, when we read the book, because what's important most of all is to know the main message of Revelation. So what's the main message? Like I keep talking about it. What's the main message? All right. There's a couple, but they're really important. So the first one is Jesus Christ is coming back soon and he will come back victoriously to save his people and to bring his wrath and judgment. Amen. So that's, that's like all over. So you know, let's back this up with scripture. Revelation um, chapter 22, verse 12, um, verses 12 through 13 says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
Um, the second thing that we need to remember is that the saints will have to endure through suffering even to death and be willing to love Jesus more than their own lives. This is like repeated over and over again all throughout the book. So um, chapter 12, verse 11, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Or chapter 13, verse 10, Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. So this stuff is like, it hits you over the head, you know, it's, it's a really convicting book. And kind of the last thing is God just reveals himself and his like complete and utter glory on his throne, like chapters four and five, like, wow, those are, if, if you try to even imagine them, they like blow your mind and God is going to bring back, is going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. So, you know, in chapter 21, verse three, he will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Or if you look at chapter 22, verse 3 through 5, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Like, wow. I don't know about you, but like this stuff gives me chills. Like, it's amazing. It does, and uh, when I'm looking at like those main points that you mentioned, what's really if if you if someone doesn't read the Book of Revelation uh, that thoroughly, or maybe they don't get too far into it, they miss one of the most crucial parts of 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 God and of life of Scripture, and that's the wrath of God. Yeah. And and the problem is, and and I just did uh, for those of you listening when this episode comes out, the episode I released last week, which is as of live right now has not been released yet. Uh, I talked with uh, with my guest about the different types of churches that we have today, the problematic churches where we have uh, prosperity agendas and liberal agendas being preached. And the problem is they talk about the love of God, but they omit the wrath of God. And we even see yeah. it in uh, in the song um, In Christ Alone. There were, there were some modern translations of the song uh, or I would say modern arrangements where some some worship bands removed the part where it says the wrath of God was satisfied and they they substituted with either the love of God or or something else and I mean that's problematic because we see here in, in these later chapters that I mean Jesus comes victorious and we see just an absolute slaughter of the people who have the mark of the beast it's 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 very gory it's very uh very explicit and you just you just see it there and it's gonna happen. And people have to know. And and if you if if you were not convicted by the first sixty five books of the Bible, reading Revelation, it's oh, yeah. going to make you want to <laughs> repent. It's going to make you want to repent because you see, like you said, the glory of God, the wrath of God, the second coming of Jesus. It's all it's the capstone. It's all put into one. All the Old Testament prophecies, all the scriptures, kind of tying into one. So uh, that that's what uh, kind of like I saw. I was like, wow, this is this is so good. But people really need to understand this, and I'm, mm-hmm. that's why I'm really glad we're doing this episode too. Yeah, it's like absolutely awe-inspiring, and um, I'm just so blessed to be able to talk about it, actually. Um, one of the things I was going to say, so we have this the main message now, but um, I want to talk a little bit about the genre of the book. I know this is kind of cheesy, but, um, you know, when you're in like English class, you, you talk about genre all the time. Well, Revelation is literature, and you want to understand kind of what you're reading. So, for example... Um, I read the Chronicles of Narnia a lot different than I read Mere Christianity, even though it's the same author. It's C.S. Lewis, but he wrote yeah. one thing to be nonfiction allegory, and he wrote the other thing to be, 
I don't know, just how Christians should live their lives. I, I read those two things very differently. Like, I don't think uh, Aslan is like really how Christ is, but it, it's a symbol of how Christ is. You know what I mean? So that's why knowing the genre of a book is really important, especially um, when we're reading through the Bible. The funny part is, is that Revelation actually is several genres combined into one. Of course it is. It's not, it's not simple, right? Um, the first thing is, it is, it's an apocalypse, then it's a letter, and then it's a prophecy. So I'm going to go a little bit more in detail over what each of these things are. The first is apocalypse. So I kind of mentioned that word earlier. Apocalypse is that uncovering, unveiling. And um, although we don't have this type of literature nowadays, this type of literature actually did exist back um, in the Second Temple period. So kind of the time that Jesus was alive. Um, this is a literature that we saw in, like, if you know of First Enoch or Second Baruch or Four Ezra, these are all apocalyptic um, writings. They're not considered part of the canon of scripture, but they could be helpful when you want to understand what Revelation is like. Um, and even in the Bible, we see a couple examples of apocalyptic genre. So one of them is the book of Daniel. That's apocalyptic. And there's parts of Ezekiel and Zechariah as well that you could consider that. So basically an apocalypse is just a, a record of someone's like visionary experience. You know, like this person has this mind-blowing, amazing vision and they write it down. That's usually an apocalypse. And um, it usually talks either about the future or the things that are happening currently. Um, but the thing that's special about this genre is that it doesn't say things literally. It says things symbolically, and it leaves it to the reader to interpret. So if we look at the book of Revelation, the angel only interprets things twice. There are only two interpretations we get in the whole book. The rest of that is for us to figure out and for the Holy Spirit to kind of enlighten for us. So I thought that was really fascinating. And the purpose of this genre, though, is to talk about things as they are to like reveal the present moment in a way that's holy and divine like through the divine perspective so um john is or jesus christ is giving us his perspective on this moment in time through his lens through his divine lens and kind of showing us an alternative way of looking at the world so you know at this point um the people in like in rome were being persecuted and you know Life was rough, but Jesus Christ is showing, hey, even though Rome might seem like it's completely powerful and completely mighty, look at it through my eyes and see that, no, it's not. I have everything under control. Things are working how I want them to go and I will succeed in the end. Like that's what Jesus Christ wants us to see here. because so that's kind of what the apocalyptic genre tries to say. So um, we get that heavenly perspective of what the church is facing and we know that god is in control despite what's happening out in the world despite even what's happening right now in the world we know god has everything in his hands you know i think that's just beautiful uh the second thing is that it's a letter and we see that at the very beginning so it's an epistle it says it's a letter that's written to all the seven churches of asia um, this is asia minor one thing to keep in mind is these seven churches are actually only about 50 miles away from each other. <laughs> you think they're like super far? They're not. They're only like 50 miles. And, walking uh, distance is pretty far. <laughs> I, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're walking it or on horse, it might be a little bit more. But this letter would usually be carried around by a specific person from church to church and would be read out loud. So that's how the epistles were usually sent around. So 
Um, we want to remember this is because these epistles were written for these churches to address some of the specific problems each church had. And we find out these specific problems because chapter two and three talks about, you know, Ephesus, Pergamum, Smyrna, like those are specific problems that John is addressing. So we just want to remember that this is kind of like a pastoral letter that's written to a church in crisis. So he's giving out, hey, commendations, and they're also giving out condemnations. Um, the last thing is, is prophecy. So this book is prophetic. It's, it's a prophecy. And it's actually what's really interesting is that it's meant to be read out loud. So fascinating. If you look at chapter one, verse three, it says, blessed is the one who reads out loud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So what's interesting is that prophecy at this time was meant to be shared out in, in like a corporate setting was meant to be shared to the whole church for them to hear. Um, there's like two types of prophecy, by the way. There's foretelling and foretelling. And foretelling kind of tells the future. And foretelling brings a message about the present. And we see both of these happen here in Revelation. We see foretelling where um, we see the truth of the situation at that moment in time being like talked about. But we also see the, uh, the future being predicted, which is that foretelling. So I thought we want to keep that in mind to see, okay, what's John, what's happening right here? Is this about 70 AD or is this about the end of the world far out in the future? Yeah, foretelling and foretelling. I actually talked about this uh, on the episode I did with spiritual gifts regarding prophecy. And we see that, yeah, a big majority of this book, a large majority is, it is foretelling. And that, I mean, that's scripture that the, the purpose is to foretell so that we, we may know what's to come. Uh, but I, I was kind of emphasizing the fact that uh, prophecies that we have today, the work of the Holy Spirit that works today uh, should be used for forthtelling because uh, Bible says that it's meant to encourage the congregation to mm-hmm. kind of enlighten, enlighten like the, and bring, bring forth the truths that already exist because, um, I mean, Ronald Reagan once said that the the questions that all men have lie within the covers of the Bible, and I think that hmm. everything that we need to know lies in Scripture, and every question that we have, every trial that we have, is in Scripture, and we just have to be <laughs> faithful and devoted. But uh, the Book of Revelation is also in Scripture, which has the foretelling aspect. But uh, this is just me, just. Uh, adding filler conversation because I thought you did a very, <laughs> you did a very uh, thorough explanation. So I'm just like, how can I relate to this? What can I add to possibly add to this? But, uh, but it's good. I, I didn't know, I, like, I never really thought of that, how there's three different genres in one. And mm-hmm. it, I think, I think it's so well put together as well. Yeah. I mean, I will say like, look at, uh, if you look at Proverbs, Proverbs is wisdom. It's like a wisdom genre. The Psalms are poetic. It's poetry. So you read the Psalms differently than you would read Revelation. So that's why it's just important to keep that in mind as we're reading through it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but I want to move on to kind of how to interpret Revelation. So this is, this is, things are going to get like messier and messier as this like episode progresses because we're going to get to things that are like more and more complicated. Like this was the easy stuff. All right. Um, Can't wait. Yeah, I know. Who, who would have thought that Revelation would have been complicated? <laughs> but um, yeah, I want to talk about how to interpret Revelation. So there's kind of, um, four major views. Actually, I would say there's five views that you could use to interpret these. 
So like as an outline, we have the idealist view, the preterist view, the historicist view, the futurist view, and the eclectic view. And I'm kind of, I'm going to go over them a little bit so you can understand what each view says. And I'm not going to make a comment necessarily on whether one's right or wrong, because I want you guys to decide what you think. So the first view is the idealist view. And that view says that the symbols in Revelation don't refer to the past or the future, but rather to timeless spiritual truths. So it's all about like the timeless spiritual truth. So essentially it means like the problems that the church has had, it's going to have over and over again throughout the course of history. And God is just going to reveal himself like that over and over again. So like Revelation is like essentially a guide as how to live like a Christian in this world. And they think that every generation of Christianity is going to have an antichrist. Every generation of, in every generation, the church is going to face tribulation. There's always going to be a battle between Satan, church, and God. Like, this is going to happen. Obviously, like, the biggest problem with what I just said is that if you just look at it as a purely, purely idealist view, uh, it ignores the fact that Revelation is prophetic. You know, that's a bit, bit of a problem. And it kind of contradicts what John said. But on the other hand, it kind of makes sense. Like... The church has faced tribulation throughout its 2,000 years of history. There's always been battles. There's actually been lots of figures who you could argue were like types of antichrists. So that's the interesting part. The second one is the preterist view. So a full preterist view says that all the prophecies in Revelation were fulfilled in 70 AD with the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. So that means, according to them that Satan has been bound and thrown into the lake of fire and that we're living in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, There's another group of preterists that say, actually, hold up all the prophecies um, until chapter 19 were fulfilled in 70 AD. And then from 20 to 22, that's going to be the future. So they kind of like are like, okay, no, that doesn't make sense. But here's another interpretation. There is some some support for this. So um, obviously the view is problematic. Like, I can make a strong argument that Satan is still, like, loose on this earth. But um, you can see first century fulfillments of prophecies that happen here in Revelation. So, for example, um, like I mentioned earlier, the prostitute Babylon in chapter 17, that seems to be pretty clearly about the Roman Empire. Um, It talks about the seven mountains. Well, Rome was a city on seven hills. It was very well known for that. And the power that she has over the kings of the earth and of the nations is the same type of power that Rome had. The other part is that, you know, we talked about the number 666 being a code word for Nero Caesar. Um, And then some people make the argument that the way that the New Jerusalem is described is actually in response to Nero's personal house. So back in the day, Nero built himself, um, he like, I guess, tore down half of Rome and built himself a huge, huge home that he just covered in gold. And here we have John talking about a new Jerusalem that's even bigger than that. And it's made of gold. It's not even covered. It's made in gold. And um, there's actually a statue of Nero Caesar that he put in front of his house where he has this crown and it has horns. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crown of, that looks like the sun. But if you actually look at it, it looks like he has horns. And that one has seven horns on his head. So you're like, hmm, I wonder if that imagery is kind of used over and over. Or if John kind of borrows you know, how that statue looks in some of his prophetic um, messages. Um, After that, we have the historicist view. So that view says that the prophecies and revelation were fulfilled over the course of history from the moment that John wrote the text to now. So like think of, you know, from 70 or 68 AD to 2021. 
Um, so a lot of like Western church fathers thought this view was valid. So we have people like Martin Luther, William Tyndale, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, they all kind of held this idea. And they try to apply prophetic fulfillments to events that happen in Europe. So to them, they would argue like the Protestant Reformation and the French Revolution are all biblical fulfillments. And uh, they actually said that the Antichrist is the Pope, you know. Um, but the problem is, is that this view kind of focuses on Europe and forgets like that there's an entire world out there that exists. Um, and a lot of people nowadays kind of reject that full on view. Um, but you could argue like, hey, look at the Holocaust, look at the Shoah and look at how Israel became a state in 1948. Isn't that maybe a fulfillment of, let, let's say, like Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones and Israel becoming a nation again? Like you could say, hey, maybe there are some fulfillments that happen throughout history. So who knows? Um, another view is the futurist view. And this view says that all the prophecies that happen after chapter 3 are going to be fulfilled at a future time. And that Revelation uh, chapter 1 verse 19 is kind of the outline of the view. So if you read chapter, if you read chapter 1 verse 19, it says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So they're saying um, those that are to take place after this happens after uh, like chapter three and refers to kind of the end of the world events. So um, like Augustine held this view and a lot of like modern dispensationalists believe this futurist view. The last view is the eclectic view. And this one basically says, um, how about all of the views? How about we take all of them? Or like, how about we say all of them are right? So uh, the eclectic view says, yeah, there's problems with all the views I just mentioned, but there's like strengths in some of these, like some of this stuff makes sense, you know? So why can't we all be friends? You know, why can't we just say everyone's right and wrong and just, you know, keep it all together? That's actually the view that I would kind of hold um, because we, I do believe that you see prophecies in scripture that aren't just fulfilled one time, but are fulfilled twice or maybe multiple times. So this is called multiple fulfillment of prophecies. Um, an example of like multiple fulfillment or a dual fulfillment is Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. So that's where Isaiah prophesies that a child called Emmanuel is going to be born. And that child is going to be born as a sign to Ahaz. And a child was born at that time and he was called Emmanuel and he was assigned to King Ahaz. But then hundreds of years later, we see the greater fulfillment where Jesus Christ, the Emmanuel, was born as a sign for all of Israel. So you could say, okay, this is a prophecy that was fulfilled at that point in time, but also had a future fulfillment that came into being. So um, another example of prophecies being fulfilled multiple times is prophecies about the Antichrist. So um, there's a guy who is named Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, he was kind of this terrible ruler that ruled over um, Jerusalem. And he sacrificed a pig on, in the temple. And that completely desecrated the temple. It was terrible. And um, that actually is a fulfillment of the abomination of desolation from um, Daniel, from the book of Daniel. But we also know that that's going to happen again in the future when the last Antichrist comes, the, like the true Antichrist. He's also going to do the same thing. He's going to desecrate the temple. He's going to go in there and call himself God. So this is like multiple fulfillments. So if I were to hold the eclectic view, I can say, first of all, Revelations teaches us that we're going to go through 
trials and tribulation through history, but Jesus always comes through for us. That's the idealist view. I can say that there is potentially prophecies that were filled, fulfilled throughout history. So like Israel in 1948, you know, that's the historicist view. I could also say the Antichrist could be both Nero Caesar and Antiochus Epiphanes and also some guy in the future that we have no idea about yet and is going to come along and be the Antichrist. So like it's a preterist fulfillment and a futurist thing, you know, so it kind of brings everything together. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on this? So as you were listing these, I was trying to find where I fit in. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I would say I, I, I like the eclectic view because you're, you're taking you're taking the good from all of them. I, but if I had to pick one of the, the four distinct ones, obviously, I think most of us are aligned with the futurist view where, the, mm-hmm. where it happens. It's going to happen in the future. Uh, I think the historicist is kind of interesting. Uh, the preterist, I don't know. I mean, if you're out there and you're and you're you're gunning for the preterist view, um, let me know. I'll invite you to my church, and we'll get the strongest pastors on the West Coast, and we'll come pray for you. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh I'm kidding, guys. But I'm just like I can see how they're both uh, like how they coincide. How like you said with Emmanuel being born, uh, and then again Jesus being born hundred hundred of years later is being fulfilled, and then um, obviously Israel in 1948. Uh, but yeah, there, there is sort of a combination. Um, I thought idealist was kind of interesting uh, mm-hmm. because we, because if you read in the book of Acts, um, when they're you know, persecuting the apostles uh, or the disciples, they stop and they say, like, wait a second, there have been other messiahs in the past, and if this, if you know, and they just died, and they the this whole revolution kind of went away. So they basically just said, let them be, and if it's if it's real, it'll continue. If it's not, it it won't. So there were a lot of there were pseudo messiahs, as it was mentioned mm-hmm. back then, and there could have been these parallel antichrists. Which uh, the thing is, we do have to agree that the anti there is one like antichrist that the Rev- that revelation mentions and that's going to be one specific person and then the rest i guess is some sort of imagery or symbolism but i thought it was very interesting uh but i, yeah. I do i do like taking because uh, obviously this isn't i mean this isn't like the doctrine of salvation so you can take a little bit from yeah. each of yeah. these different views and it, it's it's harmless but uh i think f- for the most part we're like mostly futurist with a little you know sprinkle in some history preterist and mm-hmm. a little bit here yeah, and there actually and that got kind it. of forms you eclectic. got it it's exactly what i was gonna say um, i was gonna say i hold the eclectic view but i would say like if you have a pie chart majority that is probably going to be the futurist and then the other ones are like smaller parts in there because um, i think all, all of them have some truth to them but if you were to hold to only one by itself that's going to be problematic you know um yeah, so that's that's kind of how you can interpret Revelation. After this, we kind of have the last section, which is how is Revelation going to be fulfilled? So if the up until now, you're a little confused. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for what's coming after this. But I'm going to like I'm going to talk about three views about how the timeline of the end times uh, is going to happen. So three views that people hold. So they are the amillennial view, the postmillennial view, and the premillennial view. So uh, I'm just, I'll, you know, I'll define things and then we'll go into it. So for the most part, everyone agrees that Jesus Christ is coming back a second time. There's going to be a judgment. And we have uh, eternal new heavens and a new earth. Like most Christians, 
99% of them should agree on this. What they disagree on is the millennium. That's what a lot of people have issues with. So um, it's going to be, hopefully I can like say it in a way that like you guys can visualize it and bear with me. But one of the things I want you guys to learn, like a term is called the church age. So the church age, all I mean when I say the church age is I mean the day when Pentecost happened to the day that we're living now is what we call the church age. You know, the church was inaugurated at the day of Pentecost. It continues to now. That's where we're in. So think of it as the now. I don't know. This this timeline, this present moment. So amillennialism says that all of the major events of the end times will happen all at once at the end of time. Okay, so like picture in your head, like I'm mean, you know, a straight line with an arrow towards eternity. First we have the church age, which is now, and then all at once Christ comes, there's a judgment for the believers and unbelievers, the new heavens and the new earth are created, and then we go into eternity. All that happens all at once. So like boom, Christ comes, everything happens. That's the amillennial view. Basically, I don't know if you guys noticed, I didn't say anything about a millennium in that timeline. And that's because they don't believe that there's going to be a literal thousand year reign. The reason they say that is because the literal thousand year reign is only mentioned once in scripture, and that's in Revelation. So to the amillennials, uh, Jesus is already sitting on the throne, and they think that the millennium is like a symbolic word for the age that we're living in right now, like in a spiritual sense. So the way they argue this is they say, hey, if you look at the rest of the scriptures, when they talk about the end times, it talks about all these events happening all at the same time and all simultaneously, simultaneously. It doesn't say like, oh, we wait a little while and then Jesus comes. Back. No, no, it says it happens all at once. So there's some verses that I found that could support this view, like John chapter 5, verse 28 through 29, Acts chapters 24, verse 15, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And I'm sure like you could find a couple more. Um, the people who actually really like this view are Protestant reformers like John Calvin. Um, today, from what I understand, that the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church also hold this view. And um, it seems that Lutherans, Anglicans, Methodists, and the Reformed Church also hold the amillennial view. So I don't know if everyone from, the, from those uh, churches hold that, but it seems that that's the, the majority of amillennialists come from um, these faith traditions. So... Um, there's a lot more to this view than what I just said. Um, it kind of also has to do with how you interpret prophecy, how prophecy is fulfilled in scripture, and how unfulfilled prophecy you'd interpret that. So if you're really interested in this view, honestly, I would say go online, look up resources, and just study it. You know, just look into it some more. After the amillennial view, we have the post-millennial view. So post-millennialism says that the church age we're living in is the millennium and we're living like in this golden millennium age and that Christ will come at the end of things and all those things are going to happen at once. So the difference here is that they say the church age right now that we're living in is the millennium, is that golden, beautiful, amazing age. So they believe that the world is just going to get better and better. And they say that Christianity is going to prosper and it's going to rule the earth. And if you think about it, it's like a very optimistic view of the world. <laughs> Um, and to be fair, I mean, if you compare the quality of life that we're living like now compared to like a thousand years ago or even a hundred years ago, yeah, I mean, we've come a long way. I have heat in my house, even though it's like negative 20 outside. <laughs> it's pretty great. 
but I don't think any of us would call like the age we're living in the golden age of Christianity. I don't think any of us would argue that. And it definitely won't get better. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I know. If you take like that arrow that I said to imagine your mind with like with the arrow pointing towards eternity with, um, so think of it as church age equals millennium equals that golden age of Christianity. Then all those end times things happen and then eternity comes. So that's what the post-millennials think. Um, obviously, if you read chapter 20, though, in Revelation, that makes no sense. Like, it, it makes absolutely no sense. And um, Satan is bound by an angel for a thousand years in chapter 20. I don't know if you can say that Satan is bound right now in the earth we live in. Like, I just don't think that's valid. Um, and I also don't see any resurrected Christians walking around with Christ over here. Like, I just don't see how that could be fulfilled. But this view was popular in like the mid-1800s when the social gospel was happening and the abolitionist movement was happening. But like after World War I and World War II, that view kind of lost popularity, you know, because that pessimism of the World Wars came in and we're like, bro, life is not getting better. <laughs> let's, let's put this like idea to rest. Um, the last big view is the pre-millennial view. So this is the view that a lot of us Pentecostals and Baptists and like mainland mainline evangelical churches hold. So this is the view that you're going to be like, okay, this is the one that I keep hearing in church. Um, and what most people are listening to, this is probably what you guys hold. Like this is the thing that you guys believe. So if we take that long line with the arrow that leads to eternity in your head, think of it again. Okay, we have at the beginning, we have the church age, which is now. Then the seven-year tribulation happens. Then Christ raptures the church. Then Christ and brings it up to heaven. Then Christ comes back fully, like everyone on earth sees him. Then the millennium happens for a thousand years where Christ and his church reign. And then the judgments of non-believers. Oh, actually Satan is bound. And then the judgments of the non-believers and the resurrected believers happen. And then we have eternity. Okay, so this is like a ton of stuff. But I think if you like rewind and listen to what I said, it'll make sense. Um, though I know that everyone has opinions, (laughs) like everybody has opinions and, uh, what people disagree most about over is this where, when the rapture happens, that's kind of like where people argue the most about in this view. So some people say that the rapture happens before the tribulation. Others say that it's three and a half years into the, uh, into the tribulation. Others say that it happens after, um, I'll be honest my opinion kind of changes pretty often on this. Um, and it also depends on like what scripture I'm reading. I think there's valid points you could make for all of these views, to be quite honest. Um, I would probably at this moment, as I'm speaking to right now, lean to a post-tribulation rapture. But I don't know, ask me in two days and I might have a different answer for you. You're ready. Um, Good one, luck. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> After all the three and a half years of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I will point out is that the other groups... Uh, point out a weakness in our view. So what they say is that, hey, wait a minute. Jesus is not a ping pong, but he seems to be going back and forth between heaven like a ping pong. Like he comes down to earth to grab the Christians and then he goes back to heaven and then he comes back down on earth for all to see. And they're like, if you read the rest of scripture, that doesn't happen. Um, So that's why like amillennialists would say that the rest of scripture doesn't support like this back and forth and doesn't support like this sort of weird rapture that we believe. Um, But just to sum this 
like topic up, I would say I would introduce two terms and that's dispensationalism and progressive dispensationalism. All I'm going to say is, first of all, do your own research. But if you believe that the church and Israel are two separate and distinct entities and that God still has a plan and promise for ethnic Israel that's different from the church, then you're a dispensationalist. And uh, most premillennialists are dispensationalists and vice versa. Like this category of premillennialism is where people are dispensationalists. So I'm going to encourage you to look into all this stuff on your own. This gets like really in the weeds. But if you think that church, that the church and Israel are two different things, you can call yourself a dispensationalist and you'd be fine. Like people don't understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, with that last point, the church and Israel, I mean, the only way that I see that there's two different entities, I don't see them kind of put together Mm -hmm. uh, just because there was that distinct break off in the New Testament um, after Jesus Christ came. There was a between Israel and then the church. Uh, But as far as the the different views, um, like you said, it's, 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 it's always in flux. It changes, but... I think from the people that I've talked to, I mean, I, I mean, I've talked to a lot of Romanians who are pre, post, and amillennial, so they're they're like all all of different um, types of it, and uh, I don't know, I I just it's hard to like you said, post millennial is kind of hard because Satan being bound uh, and everything like right now that that wouldn't really make sense, but I think the people who think they're post millennial are actually amillennial, and they just mm-hmm. try to. They just don't want to t- deny scripture because, like, oh no, it says like this says it in the Bible, but it does mention it once. Uh, but for my personal opinion, I just kind of like, you know, whatever happens, happens, and whether I get to spend another thousand years doing this or doing that, uh, uh, eternity is eternity to me eventually. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, but That's the premillennial true. stuff, like when it comes to you know po- uh, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, all that, uh, that changes a lot too, obviously. Um, and if I had to say right now, like like you said, it might change in two days. But I, I would say mid tribulation, just because I I, I do believe like persecution and tribulation are, are going to be two different things. That we were promised to face persecution, we are going to be facing persecution. We're not. Mm-hmm. We're going to be denied in the future. We're going to be denied rights because of our faith in Jesus Christ, and it's already starting to happen. I mean, that pastor in Canada was just arrested for holding service. And mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's, this is very like premature. I'm not going to cry out persecution right now, but this is how it's going to start. And, um, and, and that, that's how it's going to be. And they're going to start painting us in a bad picture and then we'll face persecution. But, I, but tribulation, when it, when it happens, like when, when a quarter of the population is wiped out or these different things that are going to happen, I do believe that, um, Christ will come for his bride before then. So that's why I think like, okay, mid-trib because we have the three and a half years of prosperity, then the three and a half years afterwards of, of the mm-hmm. tribulation. So that's why I kind of like, that's where I fall. But but at the same time, you could argue all three and having an opinion on either of these is is totally okay and not pro- problematic whatsoever. But uh, but yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I, I never really thought of it like that until now. Yeah. I mean, do you have any other questions on this? Because that kind of wraps up about... Uh, our discussion on how to interpret Revelation before we get into some of the symbols. 
Well, the funny thing was at the beginning of the episode, I was going to ask you a question um, because I already knew we we're going to talk about a couple of the symbols. So I was going to say, okay, forget the symbols. We'll talk about that later. But the one thing I was going to ask you your opinion on was the thousand year reign. Mm-hmm. Like that, that, and, and then you ended up talking about it. But that was like, man, I should, I should really ask about that because that's one thing that really confused me. Because, like you said, it's only mentioned once in, in the scriptures. It's mentioned there, yeah. And then mm-hmm. there is this huge overlap, and, and it's kind of like what I mentioned at the beginning of the episode about the timeline. And even if you think it, think of it uh, as a, like that linear line, like you're mentioning earlier, uh, these different views, things happen at different times. So. Uh, whether it's instantaneous or whether we have to come back for a thousand years, who knows? But um, I think we can agree that that we will find out eventually. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, that. exactly, we're, we'll find out eventually and see what happens. But yeah, my personal view is that the thousand years are a literal one thousand years, and that Christ is going to come back to Earth to reign, and there's going to be people who are going to survive all those judgments and all those wraths. So there's going to be people who are still alive and he's they're going to live with us and then we the body of christ are going to be resurrected and we're going to be able to live with christ in this thousand years we're going to reign with christ and then um when satan is unbound for one last time i think he's going to go after those people who were still alive at that point who were not saved but you know somehow managed to make it through all those judgments and he's going to convince those people to turn to him but we as the church of christ were our, our names are written in the book of life. You know, we are going to be safe. We're going to, our, our minds are not going to change. And then that's when Satan gets bound and thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. So that's just my personal view on it. And I think um, if you read into more of this um, premillennial um, view, you're going to find more people who agree along those lines. Yeah. And I, I just can't imagine how it's going to be for those people <laughs> just reigning a thousand years here. And I don't know, we'll, we'll find out. But if I'm looking back, if I'm looking back at what we talked about earlier, like it, it's almost, it's very difficult to have a premillennial view. And then let, let's say a preterist view mm-hmm. because, because that, that whole, if we believe that, then this is to come. It's not what has yeah. already happened well, I, well, or maybe that's where like the multiple fulfillments come in where i think that there's prof- prof- prophecy and revelation that was fulfilled back in the 70s in 70 ad and is going to be filled fulfilled again for the last time at the end of ages you know so that's where like that eclectic view the dual fulfillments comes in where i'm like you know the predators you know sure it happened in the 70 ad but it's going to happen again at the end of ages absolutely absolutely and uh we will see how, how that all works out. But uh, now we have, so we talked about kind of narrowing it down to two different supernatural beings that of, of, of a lot that are mentioned in this book. Uh, but we narrowed it down to two. And the first one we're going to talk about are the two witnesses. Now, mm-hmm. th- from what I've, from my studies and what I've heard o- over the years from, from people uh, around me is that people speculate that it's either Moses and, and Elijah. People speculate that it could also be Enoch and Elijah because they're the mm-hmm. only two people who did not have a physical death on this earth. And they're saying, oh, they have to come back down and then they'll be killed by the beast. And then, you know, the three days and, and, and then uh, as the proceedings go. But uh, how would you describe it? And after you do that, like, what is your personal opinion on who these two witnesses are if you do have one? Yeah. Um, before we start, for those people who are not familiar with chapter 11, 
I'm just going to quickly summarize it for them because, you know, maybe they're driving or who knows what and they can't actually go to the Bible really quick to read it. Um, Essentially, John is told to measure the temple and the altar and God gives his two witnesses authority and power. They're called two olive trees and two lampstands and they're called to prophesy and testify to the earth for 1,260 days. And once those days end, the beast conquers and kills them. And for three and a half days, the world looks at like their dead bodies and won't bury them. But after three and a half days, God raises them back to life, which brings fear to earth. And then God brings them up to heaven. So that summarizes chapter 11. So yeah, you actually hit, um, you actually covered it. So there's a few viewpoints on who these two witnesses are. The first is um, that the two witnesses are actually the churches of Philadelphia and Smyrna. Um, That's because at the beginning of Revelation, they're the only two churches who are faithful in their testimony and their witness. So they're thinking that, oh, if they stayed faithful at being in the book, that that might mean that they're the two witnesses. Um, Other ancient writers thought that the two witnesses were Enoch and Elijah because um, they didn't die. Their body, you know, their bodies were not buried. They were actually taken up by God. Others think that these guys are Moses and Elijah because God allowed both of them to both of them to kind of do the powers that were described here. And they were both prophets and they were present at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. So that's the view of like, okay, what if we treat these two witnesses as two individuals? But there's another view that says, how about we look at these two witnesses as being symbolic for the church? So um, before I get into that, I do want to say Zechariah 4, if you read chapter 4 in Zechariah, that's almost identical to Revelation 11. And it mentions two olive trees that in that text are Zerubbabel and Joshua. And they're anointed by the Holy Spirit. So that olive oil we see, it's the, it's the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit, that prophetic, um, that prophetic word. So I would say one of the first clues that we'd have that the church could be the two witnesses is the fact that they're called the lampstands. So if we go back to chapter one of Revelation, um, one of the only interpretations that we're given is about the lampstands. Jesus Christ tells that that the lampstands are the churches, are the seven lampstands, are the seven churches of Asia. So if they're the churches at the beginning of the book, it would make sense that they that the lampstand here might also be the church. And then I think based off of that Zechariah 4 passage, we understand that these are people who are anointed as prophets by the Holy Spirit. It's like the the church as it's lived out today that's prophetic and that has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside them. Um, Another thing is that, okay, well, okay, if it's the church, how can there be two of them? That makes no sense. Um, We could go back to like the Mosaic laws that God gave. And in the Mosaic laws, in ancient Israel, if you wanted to bring a legal charge against someone, you need at least two witnesses to testify against someone in court to accuse them. So God, if you think about it, brings his two court witnesses here and they're given the task of testifying to the whole world. So that would kind of explain, okay, the number two, why there's two of them. And then the things that Satan does against the church are kind of like typical of what he's always done against the church. Um, But I think we could even take a post-tribulational view here and understand the text as like the church going through tribulation and then being raptured up to heaven in verse 12 when God takes the the two witnesses and brings them up to heaven. Um, On the other hand, honestly, it could be two individuals. It could be Moses and Elijah. Who knows? But that's just some viewpoints about who they could be. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, if they aren't two individuals... um... I'm sorry, I'm not sure if you just said this right now because sometimes that happens to me. Uh, but 
how would the would the death of the of the two witnesses be uh, symbolic? Will it be physical? Um, assuming that these are not two individuals and that they that mm-hmm. they are the church. So how 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 would you explain that part? Yeah, if we were to read chapter eleven and assume that the two witnesses are um, symbolic of the church, then something happens to the church towards the end times where um, they're going to testify to the earth, and then the earth, the people of this earth, are going to kill the church. They're going to completely squash it and they're going to rejoice thinking that the church is dead. But in fact, it's not. And it comes back to life. And um, God takes the church up to heaven and then the people of the earth give glory to the God in heaven. So so that's how it would kind of play out. Wow, that's interesting. Never thought of it like that. But that's uh, for me, I always... I mean, I don't want to say always because I'm not I'm no scholar in the book of Revelation and I, I rarely speak out of it. But uh, my view coming in was uh, I was always thinking Enoch and Elijah because I mm-hmm. I kind of like the idea in the in the study that because they're the two only the only the, the two uh, people on this planet who did not have a physical death, mm-hmm. them coming down and fulfilling that uh, would make more sense, at least to me. Especially since the uh, Revelation talks about uh, the second death, and, and and there's there's multiple deaths, so them coming down having a first death would make sense. But honestly, the the church seems very plausible because when we're looking at uh, certain aspects of Revelation, and, and it's we're seeing we're seeing it beginning to unfold even today. Uh, very like I'm sorry, I'm saying like glimpses and very um, small things uh, right now, but. It's not always literal. It's, it's it's very symbolic. So understanding that it could be the church, and then the world squashing the church, and then and then God just bringing the church back up would definitely make sense, and I could totally see that happening. But yeah, uh, this yeah, is this I, is the point. This is the part where I mean, if you give some good evidence for whatever viewpoint you have, like yeah, sure, who knows? Honestly, it, it could be any of these. Um, and that's kind of where we go to for chapter 12. Chapter 12 is really interesting where unlike the two witnesses, I think chapter 12 is actually a little bit more clear about uh, the characters and what they symbolize. So so that's a nice part. So let's go into chapter 12. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but I said that word meta narrative at the beginning of, of our podcast. Um, basically, I think that chapter 12 is kind of like John taking a break from all the prophetic visions and he like zooms out like if you think about it he like zooms out of everything and then he shows us the meta story of what's happening like that cosmic scope so i think that's like what chapter 12 is is like he zooms out of all the things that are happening like the the trumpets and the bowls and he's like okay actually let me show you everything on like that cosmic scale so um to summarize chapter 12 There's a woman with a crown of 12 stars. She's ready to give birth, but the dragon's getting ready to eat the child. She gives birth to a baby boy who rules the nation, but God like rescues him up to heaven instead and sends the woman to the wilderness to be protected. And then we see like this whole cosmic battle that happens in heaven between God's angels and the dragon and his angels. And we find out that this dragon is actually Satan and he's thrown down to earth. And then while him and his angels are down on earth, he pursues the woman, but she's given eagle's wings to fly away and be protected. And furious at this, like Satan goes after the rest of her children to make war on them. And we know that these are the ones who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. So I want to say a few things about this text. The first thing, I think the woman 
can is very clearly in it like an amalgamation of a, a few things. I think she is Israel. I think she's Mary and I think she's Eve or she could be any of these. But I think uh, the way the text kind of brings her is is she embodies all of these. So the first thing that we know is the evidence that I have to support that she is Israel is the fact that she's wearing a crown of 12 stars. That's what Abraham was promised in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel. She flees to the wilderness, just like Israel went out into the wilderness, and she flies on eagle's wings, just like Isaiah prophesies in his book about Israel, and she gives birth to the Messiah. She resembles Mary in the sense that, well, she gives birth to Jesus Christ, and she's sent to the wilderness to be protected, like when Mary and Joseph went um, to Egypt to um, run away from Herod. And then I think she's Eve, as in all womanhood, in the sense that she's a fulfillment of the curse that's given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, where God um, gives women pain in childbirth and enmity between the serpent and the woman and their offspring. Like, I think we see all of that kind of coming in here. So all of this like prophecy that we have in Old Testament, I think John's bringing all of that back and we see it happening. Like we see it all fulfilled here. So um, we know that the serpent will bruise the heel of her offspring and the offspring will bruise his head. So essentially what that means is that Satan won the battle when Jesus Christ was um, crucified on the cross, but he lost the war when Jesus Christ was resurrected and when he's going to imprison Satan forever. So that's kind of like the meta narrative that I'm talking about. Um, Another thing I'm going to say, so we have it spelled out that the dragon is Satan. So that's really great because we actually know who this is. And then if there's a woman and there's Satan, a woman who gives birth, then clearly the male child is Jesus Christ because he's given the authority to rule over all the nations and he's caught up to God in his throne. He goes up to heaven, right? So that's what happened to Jesus after he's crucified. He ascends into heaven. Um, Lastly, the other thing I will say is that the other offspring of the woman is the church. And we see how Satan gets mad that he can't devour the child or kill the woman. So he goes and makes war on the rest of her children, which is us. We are Israel's spiritual offspring. And that's where one of those main messages come through, which is verse 11. It says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Like, that's that's how I view this chapter, and that's how I kind of bring it together. So that's the main message And that's what Jesus is calling us to do now. Like, it's a tough message, but this act of sacrifice is what we as Christians and children of God are called to do. And the message that this book is trying to tell us, like, it's something that we should just um, remember, like, you know, child of God, your life is not yours. Are you willing to testify and witness to the grace and love and power of Jesus Christ at the expense of your earthly life? Because if you are, then like rejoice because God's won this war and he's triumphed over Satan And we have all of eternity to praise him and glorify him forever. Like all of that in chapter 12. (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, I always saw the woman as Israel, but the the, the connections you made with Mary and Eve are are very plausible as well. And I never really saw it as like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, these 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 two chapters are pivotal. And like you said, it's it's kind of John broadening the scope, bringing it in. And then um, it just kind of sets the scene for the rest of the book. But uh, yeah, those are two of the symbols, two <laughs> yeah. of many. And I know uh, we can't possibly cover all of them, but uh, I do appreciate that you're able to help shine a light and 
clar- uh, clarify these two different symbols that are in this uh, pivotal book in scripture. But um, as we conclude this episode, uh, Rafi, what is one thing for the listeners that you want them to take away? Um, if if if, if everything that you said tonight could be summarized in a, in, a, in a statement to help encourage people who are either struggling to understand the book or maybe they, they have very limited exposure to it, uh, what would you tell that person? I would say there's three things that I want them to take away. The first thing is the main message. Figure out what the main message is and remember it as you read through Revelation. And then I think you're good. You've got it. Like you don't need to know more. That, that, that's what Jesus Christ is trying to tell you, the main message. The second thing I would say is like even in this podcast, like we, we, we've been talking for an hour. We literally just scratched the surface of what there is. There's so much like richness and depth. So it's kind of like, you know, the glory of kings to seek out the mysteries of God. So I hope you guys, like, if people are interested in the subject that they would study some more, like, don't be afraid to look for more commentaries and teachings on this book. And there's going to be stuff that you find that you don't agree with, but you know what? And there's going to be stuff that you find that you agree with. Like, take it all in and just, like, study up on it and just, like, enrich your mind. And I think you don't need a seminary degree to understand all of this. Honestly, it's the Holy Spirit who helps us understand, which is John chapter 14, verse 26. Um, the last thing that I would say is, listen, there's like multiple viewpoints on all these subjects and some of them sound better to you than others. And that's totally fine. But when you're disagreeing with someone about like the tribulation and the rapture, or if you're disagreeing with someone over like Amil versus Premil, just remember at the end of the day, you're both brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay. Like this stuff is secondary stuff. If you agree on the primary things of Christianity, on the salvation of Jesus Christ, the fact that he died on the cross for you and by his grace we are redeemed and saved and can now live forever with God in heaven. Like, if you agree on that, the rest of this stuff, like, be nice about it with each other, you know? And um, just agree to disagree and come together in unity. Absolutely. Amen to that. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time for for doing this. Uh, It was I mean, just for me, this is very informative. I, I, I definitely learned a lot, and I'm glad that I could uh, just clarify my studies as I continue to to pursue this book. But um, thank you so much, Ravi, for being here. I really appreciate it, and uh, it was very good to have you on, finally, I guess. <laughs> All right. Yeah, thanks so much. I really do appreciate it. And if people want to find you, I mean, I ask every guest this, but if people want to find you on the internet, first of all, can they find you? And if they can, where can they find you? <laughs> Uh, yes, they can find me. I am on Instagram uh, under my full name, Rafaela Heinbuchner. I'm currently on a fast, but um, I'm sure if you look me up, you'll find me eventually when I get back on. Um, I guess if you want to find me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, other than that, I really don't have anything else. So, yeah. Well, there it is, guys. Uh, Instagram that will be back on eventually, and then LinkedIn, also very important. <laughs> you know what? Uh, send all your hate mail to Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I... I I should not get any. This was, this was fantastic. So thank you so much for, for doing this episode. And thank you listeners for uh, being out there for your support. Um, as we wrap up this episode, you can, again, find us on our Instagram at The Potter's House. Regardless, if you listen to this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, please go to that purple icon on your iPhone. Tap the stars. It'll really help the exposure of the show. And please uh, share with your friends also. If you uh, have someone who if you know someone who's been struggling with this topic, with this book, or maybe they don't 
understand it fully, which should be the vast majority of us, uh, please do share and uh, it'll be uh, potentially could be uh, very beneficial for them. So thank you guys so much for your support. I'm blessed to have you guys over here and we will see you next time.